This morning, I'm starting a new sermon series for us. I've been talking about it, contemplating it for a long time. It's called Heaven and Hell. And um, it's, it's a study that I've done in the past, but it's also done that I think it's an important conversation for us to have. As a church body, as Christians, as people, anywhere you go, you'll find conversation that uh, might incorporate heaven or hell or the lack of either or all kinds of misconceptions. What comes into your mind, just do a little group think exercise and feel free even those of you in the back, to shout out, when you think of the word heaven, what comes to your mind just right now? What do you think? Big sky? Okay. Happy. Peace. Glory. Singing. Okay. Golden streets. Praise. A lot of activity going on, I'm hearing. Okay. All right, let's turn that around. And when um, you think of the word hell, what do you think of? Fire, hot, right? Separation. Pain, lake of fire. Down low versus up high, right? Okay. Someone who would die and not know Christ and end up there. Eternal. Um, well, true. Time, yeah. Outside, that's a that's a big philosophical discussion there, isn't it? Our our popular culture has fun with some of this, and I'm going to have a little fun with our popular culture. If you are a Far Side comic fan, uh, you you might like a few of these. This is one that I caught. I wish I'd brought a magazine. I mean, honestly, we we've discussed this a little bit. Leave it to the devil to make eternity sound boring. When our thoughts of heaven consists of clouds and halos and wings and music and harps and we're not really sure what else like that might be great for a while but we don't know what else to even think about so this is one here's welcome to heaven here's your harp and then welcome to hell here's your accordion um gary larson does a few other things about uh about hell that i'll, I'll put up here Oh man, the coffee's cold. They thought of everything. And then um, the guy is looking at the work order. He painted 999. He's like, ah, I must have been holding the dang work order like this. It's supposed to be 666. Okay. And then I think this is the thing. People who drive too slow in the fast lane get their own room in hell. That might be a thing. And that, to, to, and then the artwork. Did you see the, the little cave? Did you see the subterranean torture chambers? Did you see the fire? Did you see the horned and pitchfork-tailed people with, that they were the ones with the whips and they were the ones in charge and they were the tormentors? Our culture comes up with a lot of preconceived notions and, frankly, myth. Artwork, superstition, centuries of like medieval influence come into play when we talk about heaven and hell. And there's references all over in popular music. You've heard Bob Dylan talk about knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door, right? And Led Zeppelin climbed the stairway to heaven, okay? Fats Domino went to my blue heaven. Black Sabbath sang about heaven and hell. 
Belinda Carlisle, you might be young if you remember her, saying that heaven is a place on earth. But how many remember Dean Martin? He saying heaven can wait because he's with some pretty girl. Meatloaf wrote a song called Good Girls Go to Heaven and Bad Girls Go Everywhere. On the other hand, hell has been a favorite topic of some musicians, namely ACDC. Um, they have the most to say when they encourage their fans to get on the highway to hell where you can ring hell's bells and because hell ain't a bad place to be. Now, before you um, think that I'm the old fuddy-duddy in the room, this is music I was raised on. <laughs> this is what I rocked out of my car to, okay? So I am very familiar with all these, the theology that's in here. But it made me ask the question, why does heaven sound boring and hell sound not so bad? It might even be something to laugh at. It's where my, our, all of our friends are, and it might even be kind of fun. I think that's because that's what the enemy wants. The devil's work is to destroy God's work and lure people away from knowing Christ. So he makes everlasting life look two-dimensional and cartoonish, and everlasting damnation seem harmless, might be a bit inconvenient. And when I started looking for artwork and graphics to advertise the sermon series, I came upon certain assumptions that we make, such as, you know, heaven is up and hell is down. Heaven is blue sky and hell is flame. Now, that might not be inaccurate, but it's incomplete. The next one is uh, heaven and hell and everything in between. That makes a vast assumption, doesn't it? That means that heaven and hell are separate from earth somehow. And that there's some gap in between the two that there's earth. I think that's a very popular notion. It's not biblical. We'll get into that. And then there's another one, kind of fun. Heaven, yes. Hell, no. Again, there's the halos. There's the pitchforks or the, you know, the horns and stuff. There's nowhere in, in the Bible that says angels have halos or wings. Now, there are some heavenly beings that have wings, but when it talks about angels, it never says they have wings. I'm going to throw some grenades in the room, okay? I'm just going to warn you right now. When, when you leave here, you'll have more questions than you have answers, and that's good because for the next eight or nine weeks, uh, we're just going to deconstruct what we think we know about heaven and hell, and we're going to get to the Bible and see what it actually says. In the Bible, you'll never hear the words heaven and hell in the same sentence. The closest, I think, is Psalm 139, verse 8, where the psalm writer says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. Again, there's some ascension there. There's some up there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, your version might say grave or the depths. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. Now he's talking to God. If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the grave, you're there. Now the Sheol, the grave, isn't hell. It's just a place in the Old Testament where people went when they died. When you die, you go to the grave. But notice the psalm writer assumes God is present in both places. Okay? There are many places where heaven and hell are contrasted, such as the parable of the sheep and the goats. However, in the Bible, the most common word put with heaven is earth, heaven and earth. In the next few minutes, I want to frame all of human history from a different 
and I'm finding more biblical angle. For one, whatever mental image you have when I say the word heaven, I want you to replace that word with the idea of God's space. I'm not, I didn't make this up on my own. I owe some other people for, for, these, for this verbiage. Tim Mackey in the Bible Project has been very influential. Tim Keller in some of his writings. When you hear heaven, I want you to think God's space. Heaven is the place where God is. That's his throne. Heaven, let me say this out loud, heaven isn't just a place in the clouds that you go when you die. It's not just that. Some of you may have come here with expectations that I'm going to start answering questions about death or life after death, and we'll get to that, I promise you. But ultimately, those questions are self-centered I want to first give us a God-centered view of heaven and earth from the whole of Scripture, the posture of God toward his creation from eternity past and now into eternity future. Heaven is the place where God is. That is God's space. The story of heaven and earth that was once united, that was split but overlapping, and ultimately brought back together earth as God's space. It's a different kind of survey of the Bible. We'll start with Genesis 1. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, say it with me, God created the heavens and the earth. Now what is heavens in the scripture? Typically, there's a three-tiered structure of heavens in the scripture. The first is just the sky, that's where the birds are. And then there's outer space, there's the stars and the planets, and then there's where the biblical authors said that God has his throne in the heavens. And where is God in Genesis 1-1? Where is God in Genesis 1? He's hovering over the waters on earth. That's dark and empty and without function. And after he created for six days, where is God? He's on earth. Heaven and earth completely and perfectly overlapped. God's space, our space, one space. And then what happened? Sin entered the world. The serpent deceived Adam and Eve and they ate the fruit. So God banished them from the Garden of Eden. God banished them from the Tree of Life. And that was a great mercy to do that. Because God would not have them to eat from this tree, to live forever in constant rebellion against him. Because that's hell. But we'll get to that later. What if we saw the whole Bible as God's plan to redeem all of creation? The whole of Scripture gives us clues how God is never far away, entering human space at key times and points for the furthering of the rescue operation. What if we saw Jesus all through the passages of the Old Testament as the fulfillment of all God is doing from Genesis 3.15 on. God's intention throughout history is to reunite heaven and earth and to invite and establish men and women in their original God-given role made in God's image to take care of God's world, to work it, to rule over it, to be good stewards of his creation. 
Doesn't that sound like a whole lot more interesting than just hanging out on a cloud playing a harp forever? All throughout Scripture, the posture of God is toward His people. We'll cover more about what happens when we die later on, but right now I'm trying to just set a framework. And I'm going to try to do this succinctly, but try to do it justice. We've already covered from the garden when God, God's space and our space were one space and then sin broke that apart. But yet God was still present. It's often said, and I've heard it many times in church, that God cannot look upon sin, that he can't somehow be around it. I'm going to challenge that thought just by saying the word Jesus. Jesus looked on us. He walked amongst sinners. He was their friend. He is a holy God, yes, and he is just, but he, he can't help but look on sin because he sees, he sees the world and he weeps over it and he wants to save it. And so throughout history, he enters that space in various ways. He promised Abram in Genesis 12 that God would bless the world through him, through a nation that would come from him. And remember Genesis 28, Jacob at Bethel. He had a dream of a stairway where angels were ascending and descending between God's space and our space. And he woke up and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And Jesus referenced this story in John 1. He said, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a staircase, but on the Son of Man himself. Jesus is the stairway. He is the means by which heaven and earth are connected and reunited. You see the claim he's making there. Exodus 3, jump ahead. Moses, the burning bush. Take off your sandals, Moses. The place you're standing is holy ground. This is God's space right here on earth. The whole Exodus story. Plagues on Egypt, Passover, crossing the Red Sea, pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. God is visibly present. Heaven on earth, God moving. And then Exodus 19, where does God land? Smack down on Mount Sinai. And he tells the people, you better not come on the mountain. Keep the animals away. He does invite some for special meeting. He says, make special preparation. Consecrate yourselves. Be holy. And God descends in the midst of thunder and lightning and loud trumpet blast covered in smoke. And he descended in fire. The mountain trembled violently. And it says the trumpet blast grew louder and louder. God gave the law, the covenant there on the mountain, and Moses and the people began to build the tabernacle. The last half of Exodus contains instructions on how to build this tent, this portable place of worship called the tent of meeting. And if you're familiar with the structure of the tent and the measurements of it, there is a place, the Holy of Holies, where God descended in pillar of fire and his presence landed right there. Exodus 40, the tabernacle is complete, the cloud covered the tent, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Even Moses wasn't able to enter it because the cloud settled on it. Fast forward 400 years. 
The people of Israel gone from a wandering bunch of nomads to a powerful nation state in what is now present-day Israel. David's on the throne. He wants to build a great temple for the Lord, but God reveals to him that it will be his son, Solomon, that will do it. And at the end of that great work, there's a huge dedication service, thousands and thousands of sacrifices, and Solomon prays a prayer of petition and repentance. And God made his entrance to the, the Holy of Holies in that structure. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Solomon finished his prayer. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory filled the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he, his good, steadfast love, endures forever. Fast forward a thousand years. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us a living, breathing piece of heaven on earth. God in the flesh dwelt among men. And Jesus said, referring to himself, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And they didn't understand the temple he was talking about. They thought he was talking about the temple. He's talking about his body. The temple is the place where God is. What's he saying? In the fullness of him, the, the deity filled his own body. He is God in the flesh. The temple was the place where God chose to put his name, and Jesus knew he was the Son of God. He is Emmanuel, God incarnate, that John said, tabernacled among us. It was God's space, walking around, bringing little pockets of heaven into existence. The kingdom Jesus said, is here. The finger of God, it said, cast out demons, taking back territory from the enemy. Then Jesus allowed himself to be nailed on a Roman cross, absorbing all sin into himself to defeat death, and he made a public humiliation of death. Among his final words on earth were, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And as he ascended to the Father, a few days later, Holy Spirit came in power on the believers there in Jerusalem. Do you see the movement of God throughout history? He was on a mountain, he was in the inner room of a tent. He's in the inner room of a temple. He's in a man. He is man walking around heaven on earth. And then he is in the hearts and lives of every believer in the Holy Spirit. God goes from in the general proximity to walking among us to being within us. Heaven resides in you and me as Christians. God's space once reserved for a tabernacle and a temple now is within your mortal bodies. And I'm not just saying that. That's Romans 8. 
The kingdom invasion of earth started with God in a temple, and now you walk around and you are invading the enemy territory because you take God with you as the Holy Spirit resides in every believer. God's space overlapping earth in you and me. Does this change how you think of yourself at all? You're not just a person who made a decision to try and be good so you can get to a better place someday. You're part of a movement of God to reclaim a world overrun by sin and darkness. I mean, Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You were once darkness, Ephesians says, but now you are light in the Lord. You're a vessel by which God is bringing heaven to earth. When you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you pray that as a Christian, you're the answer to your own prayer because Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. How does that knowledge affect your daily decision making? How does that knowledge affect who you think you are in Christ? How does that help you battle temptation? Reframing your identity as bearing the image of God into the world, being little pieces of heaven where God's space overlaps earth because you're there. But that isn't the end of the story. One day, heaven and earth will be completely overlapping once more, and it will become full circle. It's what Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21 call the new heaven and new earth. Not as brand new, we've never seen this before, but renewed, made new again, restored to its original state. Revelation 21 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Did you notice that? Where's the movement? It doesn't say, now all people live with God. No, now the dwelling place of God is with people. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. There'll be no temple in that city. There's no need for it. The Lord itself will shine. There'll be no need for the sun. No designated God space for this new earth. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its light, are the temple. And we are united once again. And once again, in Revelation 22, we see the tree of life makes its entrance. In fact, there's more of them. And they're bearing fruit every month for the healing of the nations. And there won't be any more curse. And 22.4 says, they will see his face. And they will rule forever. Just as Adam and Eve walked with God as friends, just as Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to care for it, to work it, to be productive in God's good earth, we who are in Christ for eternity will rule and reign over this new creation. It will be so again. In the coming weeks, we'll talk through more of what the Bible says about heaven and hell, and I pray the truth will set you free. I pray that your imagination is fired up and ready to dig into what God's Word says. Heaven just isn't a place in the clouds we long for someday when we die. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they know you, the one true God, 
and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. You don't have to wait till you die to know God or enter into eternity. Eternal life starts now. Eternity starts now. Let's pray together. Father, help us to uh, have your view of the world as a place that you have been consistently working to restore, that you've sent us out on mission to bring the kingdom, your rule and reign to the earth, to restore it, to heal it, and that uh, more and more people would know and come into this protective environment, this family. And as we go from here, remind us of who we are. Remind us of not just where we're going, but where we are and our responsibility to it. Thank you for all that you have done and what you will do to restore all things. In Jesus' name, amen.